Well, with that said, um, let's return, let's turn rather to the text, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Verses 7 through 21. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would speak to your people, that your voice would, uh, would penetrate our ears and our hearts. Maybe they are exhausted or discouraged. Lord, I pray that you would speak life into us by drawing near to us. You who loved us first and sent Jesus, the lover of our souls, to give up his life for us. Lord, may we enter into this love now, even as we hear from you, Lord Jesus. In your great name we pray. Amen. If you type the word Robert into Google, Robert Downey Jr. I think appears first, but second or third down appears the name Robert Aaron Long, at least as of this morning. Robert Aaron Long, if you may have read, is the young man who entered into a number of Georgia spas and opened fire, shooting uh, at eight uh, and killing eight people. Six of them were Asian women. Robert claimed as a uh, a tender of a Southern Baptist church that he had an addiction and uh, was removing temptation. Another Atlanta-area pastor where Robert lives reflected on this heinous act 
and in Christianity Today wrote these words that struck me. I don't know exactly how Robert Aaron Long understood the gospel or Christianity, but I do know that there is a kind of Christianity that isn't very Christian. In fact, there are many Christianities that aren't very Christian. There are many people who can identify with a certain kind of Christianity and never identify with Christ. And when I read those words, I thought, wow, nothing new under the sun. Because this is precisely the kind of environment the Apostle John is writing in to the churches at Asia Minor. Here, the old hoary-headed apostle, the last man standing according to tradition, writes in his old age at the edge of the apostolic era to churches that had been planted by the apostles and by the heirs of the apostles who are now being threatened by a proliferation of alternative Christianities, many different kinds of Christianities, which weren't very Christian. And as John writes to them, he commends not only the orthodox confession that God sent his divine Son in the flesh, which we'll see is very important to his overall concern, but also loved one another. And so John makes an argument here, which is very pertinent for us, that if God, as he has been revealed in Jesus, is indeed the great lover of humanity, the great self-sacrificing lover of mankind, then we who would claim to know him must ourselves be great lovers of humanity, great lovers particularly of one another. He not only tells us that that's the case, and that's relevant today, whether we're talking liberal forms of Christianity that we are suspicious of, or conservative forms that are not apostolic Christianity. Though they, they may confess orthodoxy, do not practice love, and so prove themselves to be false Christianities, Christianities which aren't Christian, whether that's progressive or even evangelical. What I think we have been seeing these last decades or more is that not even the rubric evangelical is necessarily safe, if it ever was. John shows us what true Christianity looks like, apostolic Christianity. Not only does he show us what it looks like, but he shows us how we, how you and I, who by instinct are not lovers, <laughs> might become lovers of God and one another. So let's dive in. He begins here in verses 7 through 9. Beloved, by the way, Stacy said there are 27 times that the word love is used. Actually, two of them are hidden. There's 29. Twice he refers to us as beloved. How appropriate. Because that's who we are. Loved ones. Dearly loved ones. Let us love one another. Because love is from God. Because God is love. Many students of John say that this passage is the zenith of John's theologizing. 
John in his, his Gospels declared that God is spirit and he must be communed with in spirit and truth. He's not a God that we connect with by empty ritual or mere outward acts, but there is a deep spiritual knowing of God. But then in the beginning of our letter, he declares God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. And now at the climax of his profundity, he says, God is love. Twice he says it. Now that's not to be confused with its reverse. Love is God. There are many instances that we might call love that aren't necessarily divine. As we'll see in our letter, not all love is perfect love, but all love that is true finds its source in God, who is love. God is himself love as a relationship of a triune persons. God is love. The Father has from eternity delighted in and expressed and enjoyed love of the Son. And the Son, in turn, has delighted in the Father's love and returned love to the Father. As we read in the high priestly prayer of John's Gospel, where Jesus is facing his eminent demise, he prays, Father, restore to me the glory that I enjoyed with you in heaven from before the foundation of the world. And at the end of that prayer, he says, and let these others, these disciples of mine, and their disciples, and their disciples, and their disciples, may they all see my glory that I have from you because you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. We get to see an insight into the inner life of the Godhead. And what do we see? Love. Infinite, everlasting love. But we don't have to speculate about what goes on in the invisible recesses of heaven. In what one of my favorite living theologians, Fred Sanders, calls the happy land of the Trinity, and it is a happy land. We know what love is because God has, as Stacy said, manifested it. Look at verse 9. The infinite, eternal God who is invisible has made visible his love in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. By this we know love. Chapter 3, verse 16, we read that. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. You know, sometimes I think we think of God's generosity as the generosity of the mega rich. You know, when you have $20 billion, stroking a check for $100,000 isn't really that costly. It looks impressive, but it's really not. And sometimes I think we think of God's love as like, well, yeah, of course, of course, of course. But God's love was not just sort of pennies to his dollar. When God sent his son, he gave his only beloved up. He gave his very heart <laughs> what he's loved from eternity. And when Jesus, the lover of our souls, laid down his life for us, he gave all that he was and all that he had. This is no cheap love. It cost God his very heart, his great love. And that's why Ben Witherington, a New Testament 
scholar says, to say God is love is to say that God, listen to this, is the most self-sacrificial being in the universe. Isn't that extraordinary? He is the most self-sacrificial being. And as such, God is prepared to go to incredible lengths to set humanity free. For Christians, God is the very definition of self-sacrificial love and what that truly means, he says. So this is how we know what love is. God showed us his heart in the sending of the Son. And what did we see? We saw infinite self-sacrifice for us. Which leads us to the second point. Before we can love one another, we have to know that we are beloved. We have to first be loved. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. In verse 10, or in our next verse, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. This is very important because many of these false teachers who had gone out uh, from the churches starting these new churches, these new Christianities, had claimed that they pursued God and through great ascetic practices of self-denial and fasting and prayer, they had these ecstatic visions. They found the hidden depths of God. But John says that's not true. They didn't find God. God found you when you weren't looking for Him, when you were running from Him, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God found you. Love is, doesn't play hide and seek and wait to be discovered. Love comes after us. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Or verse 9, God sent His only Son into the world. It is the testimony of the apostles. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God did not come to the elite only. He did not come to the ivory towers of the philosophers or the ethereal realms of the hyper-spiritual. He came down into the lowest of lows. He is gentle and lowly of heart. And he draws near to the lowly, to the lowest. I loved Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Even that one. Right? Love comes to us. We don't come to him. We don't get, become uh, wise and washed and then discover the love of God. We find ourselves loved and then washed which leads us to the second point of propitiation. He sent his son not only to come into the world, but love suffered. And this was highly controversial in John's day because the Greek conception of God is that God does not suffer. And indeed it's true as we confess in our creeds throughout the history of the church. God is impassable. That means the divine nature it cannot suffer. But here, mystery of mysteries, in Christ, God suffers. And this was rejected. This is why they rejected that Jesus could have been the Christ in the flesh 
Because Christ was not only born of a Virgin Mary taking on flesh, but as we've confessed for nearly 2,000 years, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. How can that be said of God, of divinity? And yet, it is precisely the suffering of the Son that reveals the depths of God's love. So if we are to deny that God suffers in His love for us, we deny the depths of His love. We cut the legs out from underneath the doctrine of love. It is also scandalous to modern theology. In much modern theology, the notion that God would have to suffer, that Jesus would have to make atonement, that he would have to make propitiation is scandalous because modern theologians, many of them, tell us God doesn't need an atonement because he loves us. But John says quite to the contrary, precisely because he loves us, he supplies the absolutely necessary atonement. Christ suffers in our place. As we confessed from the Heidelberg Catechism, the judge himself underwent judgment in our place, and necessarily so. If it weren't necessary, then it would not prove love. I mean, if you and I are walking on a busy street on the sidewalk, and I were to say to you, hey, look how much I love you, and I just jumped into traffic, you wouldn't go, wow, James really loves me. You would go, James is crazy, right? But if we're crossing the street, and a car's barreling down, and I push you out of the way because it's the only way to save you, and in the process die, then you would say, wow, James loved me and gave his life up for me. It is precisely the fact that an atonement for sins is required for us, that the cross of Christ reveals the depths of his love. To deny the doctrine of the atonement is to deny love. And it's not just a doctrine, it's an experience. We have come to know this, he says in verse 16. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Or in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what he's saying is not just this is a true doctrine that's out there, like, hey, God loved us in this objective event that happened in history. But have you come to believe it? Have you entered into this love? It's one thing to notice the beauty of a waterfall from a distance and go, yeah, that's a beautiful waterfall. It's another thing to come and jump in the water and get in the waterfall. John's saying here, if we have drunk in this waterfall, if we have come to know and believe the love God has for us, we will feel an oughtness to love one another. If I believe that God laid down his life for you, if he considered you so worthy that he shed his own blood for you and for me, then will I consider it unworthy for, for me to lay down my life for you? No. I will feel a holy and joyful obligation to lay down my life for you and you for me. And so it is the apostolic not only doctrine that love is manifested in the propitiation of Christ, it is the apostolic experience. 
That same language, we have come to know and to believe this, we have entered into this truth, is found on Simon Peter's lips in John 6. Remember, Ant preached that a few weeks ago when Jesus gave this bizarre teaching, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the crowds dispersed like he's Looney Tunes. And then many of his disciples even, when they heard this, were like, what? Like, we were, Jesus, we were with you up to this point, but that's a line. We're at peace out. And they just left Jesus. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and says, what about you? Will you leave me also? And look what John reports is Simon Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't understand them, but you have them. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, we are convinced this is true, even if we don't grasp it all. And likewise, the question is, have you entered into not just the apostles' doctrine, but their experience? Are you convinced of the love God has for you? Look again at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So now remember, we're talking here about the experience of the divine love, entering into the divine love, not just confessing it as, yeah, that happened, that's out there, but I'm now entering into this love. And he's saying that love is perfected in us. It's an experiential perfection in which we gain confidence. This is one of John's great themes. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 28. It says that we should abide in God so that we have confidence on the day of His appearing and not shrink back. And in chapter 3, verse 21, we saw that if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. All this is the same word. And so John here is saying, as love is perfected in you, among us is one way to render this. We gain confidence. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but I thought fear is good. I mean, doesn't the Bible say fear is the beginning of wisdom? Indeed, it does. In fact, it was Jesus of Nazareth who said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Theologian John Murray said, it is the height of folly to not fear God when we have reason to fear God. Indeed, God is love, but the author of Hebrews also says, God is a consuming fire. To quote Johnny Cash, love is a fiery thing. So how do we understand this? Love casts out fear. Uh, a, a, there's a, a wonderful New Testament student from the 1700s named Bengal, and, he's, and he made a very helpful category. 
He says there's sort of four phases of the spiritual life. There's the, I don't fear God and I don't love Him. Then there's the, I fear but I don't love. Then there's the, I fear and I love. And then, just love. It is the height of folly to be in the first to say, I don't fear and I don't love. But as John Newton sang, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." So we come into a recognition that God is the one with whom we have to do. That there's a reason why propitiation is absolutely necessary. Because there is a judgment and we fall far short. Justice demands punishment. And so we rightly fear punishment. But as we receive the gospel, we begin to love. We receive the promise that God has provided propitiation. He has provided atonement for us in Christ. So we enter into this domain of loving God and fearing God. But what John says here is that as love is perfected in us, as it grows, it's not that it's not that we love, that God loves us more and more. It's that we are able more and more to receive that love. Like the Grinch's heart. Our hearts are three sizes too small. They need to grow. But as they grow, we receive more love. And as we do so, fears cast out. Because love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And Christ sent His only Son as a propitiation because Christ's atonement has already paid our punishment. But if you're like me, you often find yourself in the category of loving and fearing. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in 1 John 3, my heart condemns me. And I have to confess God's greater than my heart and cling to that truth. But as I am perfected, fear is banished. How then do we become perfected? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> John is eager to tell us. Well, he, he told us already. Verse, the end of 16, the beginning of 17 shows you his logic. Whoever can, or sorry, um, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. By this is love perfected, namely abiding in God. In John's gospel, Jesus says the same thing in another way. You'll see it on the screen from John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Whoa. Did you hear that? Can you, can, do you believe that? As the Father has loved me, the Son, from eternity past with infinite delight, so have I loved you. Now, live in my love. Just live in it. Walk in it every day. Absorb it. Live under that waterfall. If you keep my commandments, you will abide. In other words, how do you abide? Well, part of the way you abide is not only by knowing and believing it, but putting it into practice by obeying. Your heart grows as you put those muscles into use. As you keep my commands, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. Like John says here, how do we know we have confidence for the day of judgment? Because as He is, so are we in the world. Namely, those who abide in love and keep His commandments. 
In fact, perfect love is not first expressed here. John brings it up in chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2 in your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 says this, Whoever keeps his word, keeps the Father's commandments, same word, keep, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Why? Well, he's, he or she's practicing those spiritual muscles. She's expanding her heart in her obedience. So the love of God is fully formed in her. It's, it's, it's growing up. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. As he is, so are we in the world. And thus love becomes fully formed. There's a second time before this, this chunk of text, Paul, or John mentions uh, love being perfected. It's in verse 12 of chapter 4. We read over it earlier. Look there again at verse 12, chapter 4. No one has ever seen God, despite what these spiritual gurus may have claimed in their ecstatic visions. He says, no, no one has ever seen the invisible God. If we love one another, however, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Notice what he's saying. As we love one another, God's love abides and we're perfected. So how is love perfected? By our loving one another, by our practicing it, by our putting it into action. We, we abide in love by loving. We receive the love and then we love. And as we love, the more love we can receive. Not because we're loved anymore, we just have more capacity to receive it. And then a greater capacity to give it. And so on it goes until love is fully formed in us. I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, therefore, as imitators of God, or rather, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children, as those who are greatly loved, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what we're to do, live a life of love. And that's going to require a radical repentance daily from you and me. Today, I'm going to live a life of love. I'm going to abide in love. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us. And you know what it is? It's obedience to the commandments. Listen to what he says. Let no, un not, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what's going to lift others up and encourage them. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit that sealed you for the day of redemption, but rather put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Sadly, what is the hallmark of much of evangelical Twitter? Put that away that has no business in a life of love. Put away slander and bitterness and anger and clamor. Along with all malice, love judges, but it has no malice. Be kind to one another, Paul writes. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God and Christ forgave you. That is a life of love. And we practice it by doing it. And as we do it, guys, this is the incredible part. As we love, well, look at verse 20 with me. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why? You cannot say you love God whom you cannot see if you don't love your brother whom you do see. Love is visible. It's expressed. It's put into practice. 
And guys, this is how the invisible God is made visible. Remember verse 12? No one has ever seen God, but not only was the love of God seen in the sending of the Son, brothers and sisters, listen to this. The love of God is now seen in the world through you. If love abides in you and you abide in love. God's love is made visible to the watching world as we love one another, which means our love is visible. It's not just an affection we claim. It's something we put into practice. We exercise. We, and some of us, like me, we need to work on some fatigued muscles. We need to work on being together, sacrificing for one another, putting up with one another's differences regarding COVID, and tenderheartedly bearing with one another, forgiving one another eagerly pursuing one another. The world knows tolerance, but God is not a God of tolerance. He's something, to, to paraphrase Lewis, far more stern and splendid than tolerance. God loves. I don't know about you. I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be loved. God doesn't tolerate you, dear ones. He loves you. And so we don't tolerate each other. We love one another. And that is something the world doesn't see and desperately needs to see. It's why we're doing this. It's why I'm doing this. I want the world to see the love of God. Final verse, just to prove this point to you, the high priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus says, The glory you have given me, Father, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me. Listen to this, that they may become perfectly, there's that word perfect again, same word, that they may become perfectly one. It's something that has to be worked out in us. So that what? The world may know that you sent me. The world will know Jesus was sent to the world by your witness, by your life together with the saints. And they will know that you are loved by God, just as God loved the Son. Isn't that incredible? The world will look at us and go, how beloved are these people? How beloved? But before the world can know that we are so dearly loved by the Father, even as the Father loves His only begotten Son, you and I must know it. Do you know that you are loved by the Father? And do you show it by loving one another? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so perfectly loved us. Help us to come to know and believe the love you have for us. That we might abide in love. And love might be perfected and cast out all fear. That we might be fearless men and women who love boldly who love self-sacrificially, who love freely because we have first been so loved.